One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the best-selling author and New York Times columnist David Brooks. David's latest book is called How to Know a Person. In it, he explains why the best way to form a meaningful relationship with anyone from a friend to a relative to a work colleague is to make them feel seen, heard and understood. But of course, it's easier said than done. A lot of our closest relationships are often just transactional. We make brief inquiries like, how are you? But we barely listen to the responses sometimes. Could it be that if we all made more of an effort to let the people around us know that we were genuinely engaged with them, they might benefit us as well as them? David thinks so. And his beautifully written book sets out exactly how it can be done. It was a real pleasure reading his book and talking to David about this fascinating and inspiring subject. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. David, welcome to The Reset. Oh, it's good to be with you. It's a real pleasure to have you here to talk about this wonderful new book of yours. Uh, first of all, let's talk about your own personal journey, because you describe yourself as, uh, I guess, not the warmest or the most open emotionally growing up. Your background wasn't one where feelings were shared naturally. And then you had a kind of uh, an epiphany um, later in life and it changed completely. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I opened the book by saying, if you remember the movie Fiddler on the Roof, Mm. uh, you know how warm and huggy Jewish families can be. And I come from the other kind of Jewish family. And so I don't know if this is insulting to the Brits, but uh, the the phrase in our culture was uh, think Yiddish, act British. (laughs) And so a little emotional reserve as I think befits the the Emerald Isles. Mm. Uh, And so I grew up, you know, we had love in the home. Uh, but we didn't really express it. We weren't huggy. We didn't say, I love you. Uh, we were pretty intellectual. Uh, and so if you came to our dinner table, you were likely to get a, a little conversation about Victorian funerary monuments or the evolutionary sources of lactose intolerance. Uh, <laughs> and, and and I grew up that way. I went to a very cerebral school, the University of Chicago. I went into writing, which is kind of a solitary profession. Uh, and so if you had met me sort of age 30 or 40, 
I think you would have thought I was a decent enough, pleasant enough guy, but not easy to get to know. Uh, and not, uh, not, not someone anybody would confide in. And so I just didn't uh, communicate that sense of that we're vulnerable together, that I'm someone you can get close to. Uh, in part because I was probably always on the move, a little too much uh, efficiency mindset. And then around about middle age, um, I, uh, I decided if you cut yourself off from emotion, from intimacy, uh, you've cut yourself off from life itself. And you've cut yourself off from social connection. So I did, uh, I wanted to learn more about my emotions. So I did what any University of Chicago graduate would do. I wrote a book about emotions <laughs> uh, called The Social Animal. Uh, when I was at Chicago as an undergrad, I, um, my friends and I entered him in what, what's known as the Golden Gloves, Gloves, a boxing competition. But we didn't practice boxing. We just read a lot of books about boxing. And so my, my friend, he was defeated in 29 seconds. Uh, <laughs> but so I wrote a book about it. Then I wrote a book about character formation called The Road to Character. Uh, and it sort of worked. I became more emotional. Uh, I became more emotionally open. And then I think what really happened was I went through a bit of a, a hard time about 10 years ago in 2013 or so when my kids were leaving home for university. My marriage had fallen apart. And I realized I had no, um, I had a lot of work friends, like people I could have lunch and talk politics with, but I had no weekend friends, the kind of intimate friends you call at two in the morning. Mm. And uh, I did what any male idiot would do, which was I tried to work my way out of the problem uh, just by being a workaholic. And so if you had gone into my uh, kitchen, I wasn't having anybody over where there should have been silverware, there were post-it notes and where there should have been plates, there were, there were stationary. And so I just tried to cover everything over and work. And it, that led to sort of a crash and really a hard time of suffering. And my favorite thing about suffering is uh, from Paul Tillich, a theologian from the 1950s or 60s, uh, suffering, those moments of suffering we have interrupt your life and remind you you're not the person you thought you were. They carve through the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal cavities below and carve through that and reveal cavities below. So th those moments, hard times, you just see deeper into yourself than ever before. And so you're either going to be broken by suffering or broken open. And uh, happily, I was broken open. I became more vulnerable, more emotional. And, the, you know, and just to conclude that, you know, I can prove it to you that I've become somewhat different. I mean, I constantly get it from my friends. You know, you are so different. You are so different than you used to be. Uh, and uh, I was interviewed by Oprah twice in my life and 2014 and 2019. And after the 2019 taping, she pulls me aside and said, David, I've rarely seen anybody change so much. You were so emotionally blocked. And so she should know she's Oprah. And yeah. so it has been a, a bit of a, a softening as I've aged. Yeah, sounds like a, a huge softening. Just going back to that, the, the tough period of suffering that you feel was pivotal in all of that. How did you actually get through that at the time? What was it delving into this in a journalistic way or did you seek other kinds of help? Yeah, I think one, I just um, I just had to stay in the pain. There's a Henry Nowen is a writer uh, who died probably 20 years ago. And he says in those when when you're in pain, you have to stay in the pain to see what it has to teach you. And I was like, screw that. I want to get out of the pain. Uh, but uh, I did. And I think I, I was aware of sort of I've been leading my life in a more a safe way, fear of intimacy, fear of emotions, fear of being hurt. The second thing I learned in that period is that you need, when you're down in the valley, you need somebody to reach in and pull you out. It's very hard to do it on your own. Mm. And so two things happened. First was I was, um, 
I was I was accepting all dinner invitations in those days, and I got invited to a couple's house named Kathy and David. And they had a kid in the D.C. public schools, uh, and he had a friend whose mom had some drug and health issues. And uh, so they said, well, James can stay here if he has no food at home or, or no bed at home. And so James had a friend, and then that kid had a friend. And by the time I have dinner over there, there are about 40 kids around the dinner table, teenagers, and about 14 mattresses around the house. Uh, and so... I went over, and that was sort of a chosen family. And I went over to that that family's house for about six years every Thursday night. We did holidays together. We did um, vacations together. And so those kids, those 30 or 40, we call them kids. They were really ages 17 to 22, probably. Um, they just beamed love. They did not they did not tolerate emotional unavailability. Right. Uh, and I, I think it was gradually, especially over those years, um, that I really developed a little willingness to be open. And then I fell in love with a woman who's now my wife. And and I, and I so I'm, you know, the, the one test, I have these moments where I, I realized I've come a long way. And one of them, I was at a conference and the they handed us lyric sheets and it was a love song. And they said, pick a neighbor in the crowd, pick a stranger in the crowd and sing the love song into that person's eyes. And if you had asked me to do that 20 years ago, I would have spontaneously combusted. But I did it. I found some guy. I sang the love song into his eyes. And so a little bit of emotional progress. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, do you mind my asking, what's your ex-wife think of you now? I mean, do you do you speak to her much as she commented on the changes that that, that, that you've undergone? Yeah, we speak. Um, we, you know, we're raising our kids, but yeah. um, uh, we haven't we, we haven't really talked about that. And we have an agreement not to go public about our relationship. Like we don't talk about our relationship. Okay. That's oh, our agreement. That's fair enough. Um, so that's really interesting stuff. Just going back to your sort of upbringing and your time at, you know, university and, and so forth. It, it, I, I've, I've observed the, the sort of thing that you, you you're talking about a lot, you know, I'm, I'm British. So I've seen people, the, who people who might have resembled the old you a lot. And, and a lot of the time, it is people who regard themselves as almost too rational and too intellectual to engage in emotions, i.e. they think there's a way of explaining every feeling or, or that feelings are irrational and therefore are, are silly in some way. W was that you? And do you observe that being a common problem amongst people who perceive themselves to be intellectual? Yeah, I think I just was intellectual. Um, I uh, don't... Uh... I never had great faith in the power of reason. Two of my heroes are David Hume and, and Edmund Burke, and they both had limited power and the limited faith in the power of reason. I've always shared that. It's mm. just that um, I think you can ward yourself off from the world. One of my heroes um, is a guy named Frederick Buechner, who's a novelist, and he had something horrible happen to him. His dad um, took his own life when he was nine, and they never mourned. There was no funeral. The, the mom just took them away to the Bahamas, and they just were in denial. And so he was in denial till middle age. Uh, and he he had the same sort of process that I had. I, I need to see inside myself. I need to grieve my father. Mm. And by middle age, he could he was thinking about his father all the time. And by old age, he he was crying. He would cry over his father. And it took him a life long to, to really grieve. Uh, and he says, what we want most in the world is to be seen in all our fullness. And what we fear most is to be seen in all our fullness. And so he says, we have, we have to learn in life that some, we, sometimes we just need to tell our secrets. And if we tell our secrets, then we won't fall for the polished story we pretend to tell about ourselves to the world, to make the world like us. Uh, 
And if we tell a few secrets from time to time, we'll make it easier for other people to tell secrets. And that's really the way human bonding is formed. So I, I had to go through that process. <laughs> and it, it, it feels like a lot of us in life have to hit a crisis in order to get to this stage. Um, and I guess one of the things in your book is, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to hit a crisis? Wouldn't it be great <laughs> yeah. if young people could learn this stuff from an early age? I mean, I, I mean, I'm in full agreement about that. Do you think the sort of ideas that, that you write about in your book could be the sort of things that we taught in schools at an early age? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to become wise, I do think you have to experience life. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, Whenever somebody says, you know, whenever I ask somebody, what made you the person you are? Nobody ever says, oh, I had a fantastic vacation on the beach and that really was life, transformed me. Uh, it's usually some hard thing and some period of struggle. Nonetheless, I believe that to be a moral person and to be considerate to others and to know others is just a set of skills. Mm. Uh, how do you be really good at conversation? How do you listen well? How do you sit with, with someone who's suffering? How do you ask somebody on a date? How do you end a conversation gracefully? How do you host a dinner party so everybody feels included. These are just skills the way carpentry is a skill or learning to play tennis is a skill. And they absolutely can be taught. And the, my book tries walks through the various skills, tries to teach them. But they absolutely could be taught in schools. Uh, there's no reason that, just on a trivial example, or maybe not so trivial, I saw a study, uh, I think in the U.S., of the number of young men who've never asked anybody out on a date. Uh, and it's huge. It's high. And Partly it's they suck at flirting. They don't know how to flirt. So I don't know if I'd want to have a, a class in flirting in high school, but mm-hmm. if it'll lead people to have happier relationships, um, it might be worth it. Uh, and just how to end a relationship without breaking up with somebody. I had a student, one of my students I teach at the university level. She had four boyfriends in her life and all of them had ghosted her. They hadn't said, had a final conversation. I'm sorry, this is not working. They just vanished. And so she's filled with hurt and distrust about whoever the next guy is going to be. Uh, And, you know, that's partly moral weakness, but it's partly just, I don't know how to have that conversation. And that absolutely could be taught. And you think this stuff's getting worse in younger generations because of social media? Yeah, I hate to think that they knew how to do it in the past. But uh, all you have to do is look at the rising depression rates, the rising suicide rates in the U.S., the percentage of people uh, who say that uh, teenagers, for example, who say uh, they feel persistently hopeless and despondent is up to 45 percent. And so the number of people who say they have no close personal friends, that's up fourfold since 2000. And so uh, we're somehow our, our, our mental conditions, both in the U.K. and the U.S. and in many other Western countries, are just way worse than they used to be. And I don't know. There's a lot of reasons for that. I think social media plays partly a role, but um, the, the only way to fix it is to get really good at making connections with each other. You write some really compelling things about the, the key reasons for why you think this is so important. You've touched on on most of them already, but let's go through it. I mean, first of all, there was a there's a pragmatic set of reasons for this, uh, for for you know developing this set of skills. Talk to us about those. Well, if you're gonna hire someone, you want to know if they're not just what's on their resume. You want to know if they're going to be gracious to colleagues, uh, calm in a crisis, comfortable with uncertainty. If you're going to manage somebody, you have to be able to make them feel seen. There was a study done by McKinsey and they asked CEOs, why, um, why people, why do people leave your firms? And the some, number one CEO answer was, well, they leave our firm to make more money somewhere else. And then they asked the people themselves why they left. 
Uh, and they said, I, I left because my manager doesn't recognize me. They just felt unseen by their manager. And so if you're going to work with somebody, you have to really understand them and show that you understand them. Uh, if you're going to marry someone, you don't want to do just how they look or how much they make. You want to know how the, the wounds of their childhood show up in their adulthoods. You want to know if their desire is deeply aligned with your own. And so in the big decisions of life, it's just very useful to be able to understand the people around you. Um, and then there's your, uh, a set of spiritual reasons. Yeah, well, some of those uh, is I just think the, the uh, Iris Murdoch, the great novelist and philosopher, said uh, attention is the atten essential moral act, the way we attend to each other. And she says, most of us look at the world through self-serving eyes. We see other people as instruments for us to use. And she says, what we want to do is cast what she called a just and loving attention on others. Uh, and so, and if you, if you see potential in me, I'll see potential in myself. If you beam love and affection on me, I blossom. And so to me, seeing an, every person you meet well is an essentially, it's the essential moral act. Uh, and it's an act that's a generous act because it brings forth growth. I really enjoyed the, uh, story you, you cited about, um, Churchill's mother and her leaving the, the, the meeting with, was it Salisbury? I can't remember, but yeah, it was Gladstone and Salisbury, was it? And she left the second and Israeli, Israeli. Oh, sorry, Israeli. Yeah, uh, and and it sort of really well. Tell us the story because it really resonated with me. I sort of really recognised this kind of experience. Yeah, so I I make this dualism in the book between I say in any group of people there are two sorts: there are diminishers and illuminators. And diminishers are not curious about you. They never ask you questions. Uh, and I, I find I sometimes leave a party and I think, you know, that whole time nobody asked me a question. Uh, and so a lot of people just don't ask questions. They're, they're diminishers and they stereotype and they ignore you. On the other hand, there are illuminators. And illuminators are curious about you and they make you feel seen, uh, respected and lit up. So one illuminator was, um, uh, was Ian Foster, the novelist about a, more, a little more than 100 years ago. His biographer wrote of him that to be with him was to be seduced by an inverse charisma, a sense of being listened to with such intensity, you had to be your sharpest, best, most honest self. And we don't like to be able to listen like that. And then the Jenny Jerome story, she's in London in the late 19th century. Uh, and she's seated one day at a dinner party next to William Gladstone when he was prime minister. And she left that dinner party thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. And then a couple of weeks later or sometime later, she happens to be seated uh, at another dinner party next to Benjamin Disraeli. And she leaves that dinner thinking that she's the cleverest person in England. And so it's good to be Gladstone to be clever, but it's even better to be Disraeli, to, to, to be someone who can bring out the best in other people. And so they walk away, you know, walking on air. It's an, it's an incredible skill to have. And, and when I was reading your description of it in the book, I, I immediately thought of three, four, five moments in my life where people perhaps unknowingly had done that for me. Um, you know, sometimes at moments where you really, really needed it and, and someone, and, and I think you, you say that it's like pointing out a quality that you yourself didn't even realize you had, but they point yeah. it out in such a convincing way. It can really make you walk on air and it can be, it can be life-changing and it, and it really made me think as well, well, if that had that impact on me 
imagine what a beautiful thing it would be if I could do that for other people. And and it's yeah. something we all have in our in our power. Uh, is it sometimes our own insecurity that can hold us back, though, from praising others or even asking other people uh, about what's going on in their life? Yeah, I mean, the number one reason people don't really pay attention to others is ego or too into ourselves. Sometimes it's anxiety. you got so much noise in your own head that you can't really have time or space for the other person. But I think a lot of it is what you say. It's insecurity. Um, I interviewed a guy at, at the University of Chicago uh, named Nick Epley, who was commuting to work on a train, commuter train. And he knows that human beings, um, more than anything else, love social life. That's what people love. Uh, and yet he was surprised that of all the people on this commuter train, nobody was talking to anybody else. They were all on their screens with headphones in. And so he's a research scientist. So the next couple months, he started paying the commuters to talk to each other. Uh, and afterwards, he interviewed them, and they were all in raptures. They said, this is the best train ride I've had in weeks. And introverts said this, extroverts said this. And his conclusion is, we underestimate how much fun it'll be to talk to a stranger. We underestimate how much people really want to go deep quickly. Uh, and I can tell you, my career as a uh, journalist I've spent my life asking people questions and sometimes kind of intimate questions about their own lives. And how many times has anybody ever said to me, none of your damn business? The answer is zero. No one has <laughs> ever said that. Uh, people are dying to talk. If you ask them respectfully about their lives, they're dying to talk about it because no one has ever asked. So getting over that insecurity, that that fear that they won't like it or that we'll we think where they're invading our privacy it's just not a very common fear. And so we, we need to get over that. And I've uh, learned even on planes and trains, I now talk to people more and it, it's fun. It's fun. Now, this is a very pertinent area, especially right now at this moment in time. You write the third reason for why you feel it's so important to have this set of skills is, um, I think you say it's national survival. Um, and, you know, the point about working pluralism and how it's more important now in the societies we live in. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people sing you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To develop the skill to see things from different points of view. Um, yeah, it really resonated with everything that's going on right now at this moment. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, we evolved to, to, um, to live with bands of people pretty much like ourselves, 150 people. And now we live in these diverse pluralistic societies. And that diversity is wonderful, but it's it's harder to know. It's easier to know somebody with, from your own culture who has a similar background. It's just harder to know other people. So you have to make an extra effort. 
to it. And then it's especially hard to know someone across some significant line of difference. Uh, and particularly in these days, ideological differences. And so since October 20, October 7th, since the mm -hmm. Gaza operation split up, I think in across a lot of Western countries, let alone in the Middle East, people have viciously different views about the Middle East and what should be done there. And it's just become brutal to be in conversation. And in the book, I have a chapter on how to talk across ideological difference. And one of the points I've learned is that um, my first job when somebody comes at me with a point of view I really disagree with is to stand in their standpoint. That is to say, to ask them four or five times, uh, what do you mean? What, do you, what, do you, what are you saying here? Tell me more about it. Tell me more. What am I missing? And then the second thing I try to do is get them to tell me a story. So I no longer ask, what do you believe about that? I ask, how did you come to believe that? And that gets them talking about some figure in their lives who shaped their values or some experience they had. Suddenly, they're telling a story. And if I keep asking these questions, maybe we'll never disagree. But at least I've um, communicated curiosity and respect. And in any conversation, uh, respect is like air. If it's present, nobody notices. And if it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So as we're having this disagreement on ideology or whatever, we got to be aware that there's an under conversation. The, there's the nominal conversation we're having on whatever subject we're talking about. But the real conversation is the flow of emotions flowing between us. Uh, and I'm either showing you with everything I say, more respect or less respect. I'm making you feel more safe or less safe. And so the questions want to encourage a sense of safety. Uh, and I want to stand in your standpoint. Is this the, you know, is this the key to us making pluralism which is only gonna you know with mass migration um it's only going to become more and more of a melting pot the societies we live in the uk and the united states and beyond it, you know are, are the, the the subjects and the skills you're writing about in this book are they fundamental to all of this working i i don't see how we can have a, a mass multicultural democracies without the ability to see across difference and understand each other and that includes knowledge of different cultures uh, and so, you know, I uh, once was at a dinner party and I asked the quality of your conversation depends on the quality of your questions. So I like to ask big questions. Um, if this five years in your life is a chapter in your life, what's the chapter about? And that gets people talking about, you know, what, about where the, what they hope to do in the next five years. If we met a year from now, what would we be celebrating? Uh, if what crossroads are you at? What transition are you at? But one of the questions I asked at a dinner party uh, was, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And so we're all shaped by, by the heritages we carry. And um, so I asked this at a dinner party, and there was a Dutch couple there, and they started talking about how Dutch culture shaped how they see. There was a black couple. They started talking about how the African-American experience shaped you know, who they are and how they see the world. I talked about coming from Jewish heritage, 5,000 years of Jewish history, and what, how that shapes who I am. And so being honest about each other's cultures and being curious about each other's cultures is, hey, super fun. I mean, it was a really good conversation, lasted mm -hmm. like an hour and a half. Uh, and then it's, you want your conversations to be not just people making statements at each other, but a joint exploration. It's something we're both curious about. And I'd be like, you know, how did your, whatever, English heritage, Scottish heritage, whatever it is, how, did, how does it show up in your life? 
Um, that's just something interesting. How do you contend with people who, once you set them off, they cannot stop? And the conversation has no back and forth. Yeah. It is monologuing. Because I, I mean, so much of, I mean, you've opened my eyes in this, but I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass here. You've opened my eyes to the nature of several long-term relationships I've had, my own <laughs> failings in some of them. And yeah. certainly the ways in which perhaps I've been, I felt bad about certain relationships. I didn't realise that it was, I used to think, I don't think that person doesn't love me. I don't think that person doesn't even, I think they like me and they love me, but there's something I don't feel is right in this relationship. And mm. then you realize maybe it's because they never ask questions or don't seem to really understand who I am or anything like that. Now I've uh, conversely sometimes thought the only way to deal with this person in my life is to ask them questions nonstop about themselves. That can go too far and you can end up carrying a bit of resentment around. Uh, uh, when, when someone you know you give someone an inch and they take a mile how, yeah. how, how, how what's our way around that david yeah and so it's sort of a how can an illuminator talk to a diminisher yeah and you can quite. can you convert them uh, yeah and so i i guess i would say you know i'm sitting here in washington dc the, the most emotionally avoidant city on the face of the earth and i've <laughs> i have a lot of these conversations so i i think i tell the story the story in the book um i was talking to a friend of mine who happened to work in the obama white house and I'm on my cell phone, and in the middle of the conversation, the call drops. And so I think, oh, he'll notice in a minute, he'll call me back. And so I wait two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And finally, it's somewhere between seven to 10 minutes, I call his office. And his assistant says, oh, he can't talk now, he's on the phone. And I say, no, he's on the phone with me. He's been bloviating <laughs> 10 minutes, and he doesn't notice. And so I, all I can do is when I hit somebody who's all walled up like that, I can lead with curiosity. I ask some question about them, hoping they'll reciprocate, or I'll reveal a little vulnerability, just a little to see if they're willing to reveal a little vulnerability. But often they're just not. And my rule is if you invite me to coffee, say, and you talk at me for 40 minutes as if I don't exist here, I'm just an audience, mm -hmm. then we will not be enjoying each other's company again. Because that's like right. a red flag for me. It's, at some point it just yeah. has to be reciprocal. And if it's not reciprocal, it's not really a relationship. Yeah. And if and also, um, you know, people talk about nowadays, you know, phrases that you hear bandied around a great deal are things like setting boundaries in relationships and being very aware of self-care. OK, yeah. um, in fact, I guess what you just described is both of those things. You know, you're setting a boundary. <laughs> You're like, my boundaries, I'm not going to be an audience for 40 minutes. And your self-care yeah. is, I probably won't go for coffee with you again. Uh, but it's difficult, isn't it? If it's a, someone who is important in your life, the balance between, yes, you want to see them. You want to demonstrate that you're capable of illuminating. But yeah. at, at what point can that become indulgent? At what point can that become damaging to you? Yeah. So in the in the book, I... I summarize another book, a really great book called Fierce, Fierce Attachments by a, a writer named Vivian Gornick, an early mm. feminist writer. And she just, it, the book is really about her relationship to her mother. Yeah. And they spent their whole lives together really fighting, <laughs> fighting over who is to blame. Uh, and so the mom, Bess, is, is a pretty self-absorbed and she doesn't really see her daughter. She just sees her, her own drama. And then her daughter, Vivian, at one point in the 
book right it kills me not knowing her not knowing i'm there she doesn't even know that it kills me but it kills me that she doesn't see me at all and it's a they spend their lives together they're sort of addicted to each other and they're but they don't really and they don't really know each other uh, and it's proof that you can love someone and be loved by someone who doesn't know you mm. uh, and that happens i think in families uh, and so the only thing the problem with vivian she doesn't see her mom's from her mom's point of view she only sees the effect her mom has on her and so we never get to know what her mom like away from vivian uh, and so i think part, one of the problems with some relationships and it could be a parental it could be spousal is you get locked in a way of engaging that there, there th somebody once said there are three people in any marriage there's the husband the wife and the marriage and the marriage is the pattern of way of the, the way you guys relate and i found the you know since i've gone through this change we talked about being a little more open the hardest relationships to change are the oldest because we're stuck in an old pattern and even though i i want to behave in a different way a more vulnerable way and more open way i found it very hard to fix relationships that already have their own ruts mm -hmm. um so david there was a huge amount of very useful um sort of advice and and you know ideas in this book but tell us how can we be more open-hearted what are your what are your day-to-day -day tips about you know how, how anyone can make little changes in their life right away to feel more open-hearted and to demonstrate to the people in their lives that they can truly see them yeah so first um uh is the gaze uh we don't appreciate how much when we're first seeing someone or even somebody we know well how how they're they're going to be asked when we fear when we meet we're each asking a question am i a priority for this person does this person like me uh can i trust this person and those messages will be conveyed in your eyes before any words come out of your mouth. So the story I tell is I was at a diner in Waco, Texas, uh, and I'm sitting with this woman, a 93-year-old woman named LaRue Dorsey, and she presented herself to me as a stern disciplinarian. Uh, and she was had been a teacher, and she said, I loved my students enough to discipline them. I was a little struck. I was a little intimidated by her because she was so formidable. Into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours named Jimmy Durrell, and he comes up to our table, he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders, and he shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he says, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. And that bright, that stern disciplinarian turned into a nine-year-old girl with her eyes glowing, just the softest creature you can imagine. And it shows the power of attention. If you just attend to somebody in a warm way, you'll bring out a different version. But the most important thing is, uh, is the quality of your conversations. Like getting to know someone just requires you to be an excellent conversationalist. And so how good are, are we at conversation? And the answer is we're not as good as we think we are. And so it's the ability to take a um, an average conversation that we're going to forget in five minutes and turn it into a meaningful and a deeper conversation. Uh, and so some of the tips in how to be a good conversationalist are I have a whole list of tips in the book. Uh, don't be a topper. If you're telling me you have, you're having trouble with your teenage son, my instinct to say, oh, I know what you're going through. I'm having trouble with my Tommy. Mm. And it sounds like I'm just trying to relate. But what I'm really trying to do is hog the conversation. So we're talking about me and not you. Yeah. And so don't be a topper. Uh, be a loud listener. Uh, 
I have a friend, when you talk to him, it's like you're talking to one of those charismatic churches. He's like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, amen. Preach that. And I love talking <laughs> to that guy. He's just a loud yeah. listener. Yeah. And you can you can do that with facial expressions. You can do that just by showing. And then another one as simple is treat attention as, as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. When you're with somebody, make sure your attention is on them 100%, not 60%. Mm. Uh, and so there are, there's a whole bunch of tips, but just becoming great conversationalists is really the key. And, you know, it's what we do at a, at a pub at night or whatever. I mean, it, it can, these skills are everyday skills. David, have you, I'm really curious to know if you've noticed a difference in re reactions to these kind of things uh, across different cultures, because in, in the UK, you're, you know, the stereotype that you, that you mentioned at the, the beginning here and that you mentioned, but is, is, you know, broadly correct as a Brit, I would agree that we're a reserved people, but one of the things that we do in Britain that I've noticed less in America, and I've got relatives in America and and spend quite a lot of time there, is that in Britain we have a we we, we have a almost pathological need to to make jokes of everything, particularly <laughs> self-deprecating ones. Yeah. And so I read a lot of the stuff in your book, and it all makes sense to me. But I think yeah, in America. People are going to, you're going to praise them and they're going to love that and light up and maybe praise you back. But in Britain, people are going to be so mortified by the praise <laughs> that they're going to immediately make a joke at their own expense and then perhaps at yours as well. Yeah. Uh, is this something you have noted when dealing with people from different countries and cultures? Yeah. Somebody told me the Danes. So I, I, I couldn't, I've not been able to verify this, but somebody told me the Danes in, in Danish have a word for, I feel bad for you because you just showed too much emotion in public. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so I don't know if that really is true, but it could, it's a good word to have. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the UK. Uh, and obviously the the level of, as you say, the level of humor, the, the median, as George Orwell once wrote, the median of behavior is different in, uh, in England than it is in France or is in the United States. And I would say there's more joking uh, and there's more sarcasm and, a, a lot more yeah, and, and, and we hide behind that you know sincerity yeah. doesn't come that naturally to to us as brits i don't think right and i and americans can be overly sincere yeah, uh, yeah. especially southerners or midwesterners <laughs> or at least the appearance of sincerity uh but i would say we're all humans uh and humans from time to time uh need someone who uh who just can look into their eyes and see them. And, you know, even the two stories I told about the illuminators, Ian Foster and, and Israeli, those they're both Brits. So, uh, yeah, uh, and you, you look at the, the great art and novels that have come out of Britain. And my lesson has been to look frankly at the way musicians sing. Uh, and it's been a model for me in doing this book. I, I interviewed tons of people from therapists to cognitive scientists, uh, and, uh, Actors were the best people to interview because yeah. actors are really good at getting to a role. And so they really have to study and they, they have to steal mannerisms so they know what to do. Yeah. And so uh, actors taught me a lot. But I, I look at the way a singer is just if you go into a little club somewhere and maybe he or she is singing for like 15 people, they're still putting it all out there. And they're just like reliving the passion of the song. And I, I sort of have learned to copy that a little. Like if they can do that, uh, then I can put a little more passion into it and, and get cut through some of the humor, uh, some of the sarcasm. What's interesting to me as well is that 
you're doing this in your day-to-day life obviously you meet a lot of different people in your job and you you you're very diligent and forensic in your in your level of research but your day-to-day life you know you're spending time in washington so uh, and with ju- so you you're surrounded by people in the political world people in the journalistic world people in the academic world now I would say that's three of the hardest. That there's a the most cynical worlds, particularly journalism and politics. I don't, yeah. I'm not so familiar with the a- academic world, but there's a lot of cynicism. So if you're able to operate in the worlds you live in with this yeah. kind of open heartedness, and I suppose it's possible for anyone, right? Yeah, I'm in a hostile work environment for this. <laughs> yeah. That's for yeah. sure. And people think you know because we journalists ask people, you know, we're, we're interviewing is what we do. You think, oh, you must be socially superstars, but when I walked in the New York Times for the first time, wow, what a bunch of socially awkward people. And <laughs> a lot of us need the interview structure to structure our social lives because we know how to handle an interview. Mm. But a conversation, wow, that's really hard. But mm. I have found and say in to take the hardest of all hard cases, I would say I'm where I'm sitting is 10 blocks from the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and uh, so I interview a lot of senators and a lot of Trump senators and a lot of Republican senators who pretend they like Trump, but who don't really like Trump. And so there's a lot of cynicism there. And I have found um, it's so easy to reach them on a personal level. Everybody's going through something. Mm-hmm. And a senator I I know came up to me or sent me a little text saying um, that his wife was dying. And, you know, so whatever I think of his politics, he's still a human being down there. And human human beings hunger for recognition. Uh, we all, you know, we all came out of the womb wanting our mom to see us, and we all want recognition to this day. Um, have you ever interviewed Donald Trump? Uh, I have. I interviewed him before he became president, uh, but I, I, since he's become president, uh, he has communicated with me, but not in the, a nice way. <laughs> Do you think that Donald Trump um, longs to be seen? <laughs> well, yes, he, he desperately wants to be seen. Does he want to be known or know himself? No, there are some people who are I, like, I don't think I'm going to turn Donald Trump into some hero just by yeah. gushing warm feelings toward him. So some people, have, as I say, have made themselves uh, not the problem with narcissism. There's no cure. David, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you and a real pleasure reading how to know a person it is a, a wonderful book that's really opened my my eyes and, and my heart to a lot of you know hopefully positive things about relationships in my life and i'm sure it'll do the same for anyone who reads it uh, there'll be a link in all the notes to get the book in the notes for this podcast for now i uh, wish you all the best and thanks so much for your time that was david brooke his book how to know someone is out now and it's great i put a link in the show notes I've certainly taken a lot from his ideas and have been trying my best to implement them to everyday conversations ever since our chat. Thanks for listening as always gang. Apologies that the episodes have been less regular of late. I'm tied up with writing a new book of my own which is due out in 2025. It's about mental health, masculinity, work and burnout. I need to have it done by May. The irony is I may well burn myself out trying to do it. But keep an eye out for more episodes soon and more newsletters via samdelaney.substack.com. There's a huge archive of podcasts and articles over there on my Substack. So if you don't already, please go ahead and subscribe. Fill your boots. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.